Well, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5 today. Um, you can either turn to it or follow along. Uh, the passage will be on the screen behind me. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at the first 11 verses. Uh, we're going to slowly read through it. I'm going to pause every now and again, uh, explain things as we go, uh, and then we're going to wrap it all up by looking at what I think are three important lessons for our lives today. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. One day, As Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Uh, let's just pause there, there's going to be a picture that comes up just so you can visualise the scene, that the Sea of Galilee was about seven miles wide, 13 miles long, pretty big, it was 180 metres below sea level, it was surrounded by hills, you can kind of visualise it picture the scene. So one day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, his owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. It's like Jesus is gaining huge popularity. Uh, I mean, the people have never heard anybody teaching like him before. They've never seen the miracles that he was performing. And crowds were beginning to swarm to see him in the flesh. It was pretty rammed. And so Jesus uses his initiative. He spots a boat, climbs into it, and uses the shore as a kind of natural amphitheater. Now, We're told here that the boat that he taught from belonged to a guy named Simon. Just to say, just to explain, Luke 5 isn't the first time that Simon encounters Jesus. John chapter 1 tells us that prior to this episode, Simon's brother Andrew had been following John the Baptist. Until one day, Andrew sees Jesus and goes home excitedly and tells his brother Simon, Simon, I think I've found the long-awaited Messiah. You you, you must come and hear this guy. I mean, you've got to meet him. So he brings Simon to meet Jesus. And Jesus takes one look at him and says, you're huge. I mean, you're built like a rock. So I'm going to give you a nickname. From now on, I'm going to call you Peter, which means the rock. That that was Simon's name from that point on. Simon Peter, the rock. Now, from that point, Andrew and Simon Peter started following Jesus, not wholeheartedly to begin with, and evidently because they're still fishing, not full-time, but they were all the time listening and watching. So Peter already had some kind of relationship with Jesus. He knows Jesus before Jesus comes on the scene here in Luke chapter 5. Back to the text, verse 4. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night. Let's just pause there a moment. First of all, who's he referring to? He says, we have worked hard all night. Who's the we in this story? Well, there's a couple of other guys here, James and John. James and John were two brothers. They're also 
pretty hot-headed. They were very judgmental of others. In fact, Jesus gave them a nickname. He called them the Sons of Thunder because they're always looking to pick fights with other people. There's this one occasion, we'll get to it uh, in about a year's time probably, in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus was was heading to a Samaritan town and, and the people in the town reject Jesus. And James and John want to just order down fire from heaven and destroy the lot of them. That's the kind of guys they were. So Peter, the rock, and James and John, the sons of thunder, were the three central characters in this whole story. These are the three guys that Jesus turns to when he's finished teaching and says to them, hey, let's go fishing. Now, Peter's reaction to this is great. He kind of says, you want to do what? I mean, we've been fishing all night long. We are worn out. We're frustrated because we didn't catch anything. And besides, right now isn't a great time to go fishing. It's morning that the sun is shining down on the water. It's going to scare the fish. Now, you're a carpenter, and I can respect that. You're also a rabbi, I I respect that. But the truth is, you know preaching, I know fishing. You ever felt that way? I felt that God knows a lot about spiritual stuff. He's kind of like an expert when it comes to things like prayer and worship songs and, and stuff like that. But when it comes to kind of running my business or raising my kids, or planning my life. God hasn't really got a whole lot to contribute to that thing, that stuff. But that's how it was for Peter. He starts off ever so slightly sceptical. I mean, these were commercial fishermen. For, for these guys, this was their livelihood. It was their major source of income. They were the experts here. What's more, they were tired they were frustrated, they had these heavy boats, they also had these heavy nets that would have had lead weights around the edges of them. That These nets, they'd cast them on the water, that the nets would float down and kind of get on top of the fish, and then they'd quickly draw them up, and when they'd draw them up, if they didn't catch any fish, the nets would be stuffed full of all kinds of rocks, and sand, and silt, and weeds. And it says in the text here that they were just finishing cleaning the nets, having not caught a whole lot of fish, but I guess they were full of all this muck. They've been picking out all the rocks, and silt, and weeds, and stuff. And Jesus comes along and says to them, I've got a great idea. Let's go fishing. Let's dirty those nets up again. Let's go out a little deeper. I understand Simon not being particularly impressed. I mean, what kind of a crazy plan is that? Look at verse 5. I think this is a crucial part of the story. Master, Simon replied. It's the very first time this particular word is used in the New Testament. It's a step up from rabbi or teacher or instructor. It means you've got authority. I respect you. 
Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. And then here's the key phrase. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. If you say so. I mean, this is huge. Simon's a pro. He knows fishing. He he knows the sea. He he knows this particular lake. He he knows the odds of catching any fish, especially that far from shore. Nevertheless, he'd seen Jesus in action before. And he says, I wouldn't do this for anyone else. But because it's you, because you're asking me, I'll do it. He, He does what Jesus asks. And the rest, as they say, is history. Peter goes out to the deep water, agrees to drop the nets. When he starts to pull up the nets, all of a sudden his muscles start to bulge and it's as though his eyes are popping out of his head and, uh, and the nets begin to break. So he signals for his partners who come alongside in their other boat and the two boats together are trying to pull up this net full of fish. Verse 7 describes how there are so many fish the boats themselves start to sink. goes without saying, Peter, James and John are absolutely blown away by this, completely astonished with this miracle. Verse 8, when Simon Peter realised what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. It's like, man, I, I don't even deserve to be in the same boat with you. In that moment, he sees who Jesus is. He catches just a small glimpse of his power and his purity and his incredible goodness, and it's all too much for him. He becomes aware in that moment, in that instant, of his sheer unworthiness. And he's left completely humbled. Verse 10, Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for, that that word literally means rescuing, you'll be fishing for, you'll be rescuing people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. It's a familiar story. But because it's familiar, because most of us are kind of used to kind of what happens here, we, we could easily miss the significance of what's going on. Three things I want to make sure you get before we finish. First of all, I don't want you to miss the insight we get here into the kind of people that Jesus calls. Let me give you a bit of background. Back in Jesus' day, Jewish kids would enroll in Hebrew school and would study the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Actually, they'd commit the first five books of the Old Testament to memory. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine memorizing the first five books of the Old Testament? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. A lot of us I've never even read those five books, let alone memorized them. But back then, there were no printing. 
presses and copying was very expensive. When I say copying, I don't mean photocopying, I mean kind of handwritten copies of the original text. But each town had a synagogue and that synagogue would maybe just have one copy of the scriptures and so what people tended to do was commit it to memory. Ever wonder when Jesus was teaching why he'd often say, you know, or you have heard, or it is written. Well, well, people knew what was written because they'd memorized it. They had it in their heads. Now, teenage students who were studying there at the Hebrew schools, they would seek the favor of a particular rabbi, a particular teacher. That was a big honor. They're asked to follow him around in the hope that they'd become part of what was called his Talmadim, his group of disciples. So they'd learn to think and act and actually over time grow to become more like him. That's what they would have aspired to be. But if a rabbi believes that any of these students didn't have what it took to follow him, he'd send them home. A bit like Simon Cowell on Britain's Got Talent or Lord Sugar on The Apprentice. It, it, it could really be quite brutal. It, he'd say something like, listen, I, I think you've got a pretty good handle on the Scriptures, but honestly, I don't think you've got what it takes to be one of my Talmadin, to be one of my disciples. I'm looking for a, a standout act here, and you're not it. You're fired. And he might encourage them to go home and learn the family business of farming or shepherding or fishing or carpentry or something like that. But if a rabbi chose one of these young guys to be on his team, most likely they would leave their home, they'd leave their mum, they'd leave their dad, they'd leave their friends, literally follow this rabbi everywhere. The desire was to get as close as you could to the rabbi. There was a whole lot of kudos involved. Well, at the point where we join this story in Luke, Jesus is now 30 years old. It was the time when rabbis generally started their public speaking ministry. And Jesus is walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he stumbles across these young guys fishing with their dad. Now think about it. Why would a bunch of young guys be fishing with their dad? Because these were the guys who got sent home. These were the guys that didn't make the cut. In other words, Jesus chooses the ones that the experts, that the rabbis didn't want. Imagine how it made these three guys on the boat feel And Jesus asked them, them of all people, to follow him. Just this overwhelming feeling that comes over you, isn't there, when someone picks you, when somebody chooses you. Imagine how amazed these young guys would have felt thinking, somebody like that believes in me? I mean, If a rabbi called you to be his disciple, he was saying, I believe you have what it takes to actually, over time, become like me. Now, this was so contrary 
to these disciples' way of thinking that Jesus, over time, had to keep reminding them of this. Even towards the end of his time with them, he was still saying things like, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It's like, it still hadn't fully sunk in. He had to keep underlining it, keep reiterating it. Ever had the feeling when you didn't get picked? Don't want to dredge up lots of sad memories for you, but maybe in that playground game or at the school disco or maybe you didn't get on the course or you didn't get that job. Feels pretty rubbish, doesn't it? It's a pretty rubbish feeling to feel like no one wants you, to feel like you've been rejected. Well, just contrast that with how good it feels to be chosen by God. To hear God say, I choose you. I want you. I I, I wish you were my son. I, I wish you were my daughter. People like us. People like those three or the 12 that they grew into. People who've made mistakes. People who certainly aren't perfect. People who are pretty weak at times. What a feeling to be wanted by God. Listen, God wants you. God wants you. Truth is, there is absolutely nobody in this room that is not wanted. And for every single one of our lives, you may feel rejected, you you may feel unwanted in, in lots of different ways, but it's simply not true where God's concerned. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 6. I'm going to read it from the message translation. It says this, Long before God laid down the earth's foundations, He had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of His love, to be made whole and holy by His love for us. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He he wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his own beloved son. I want you to let it sink in. You are the focus of God's love. You are. Now, when I'm the focus of someone's love, when I know I've been picked, I know I'm chosen, it means someone wants me. I'm desired, I'm loved, I belong, I have security, I'm no longer isolated, I'm no longer disconnected, I I have huge potential and regardless of my past and regardless of all my inadequacies and regardless of my huge potential for failure, somebody believes in me. I tell you, believing this has changed the way I approach life every single day. It's like I walk through life knowing I'm wanted. Changes things. Jesus recruited people that nobody else wanted. Jesus believed in Peter and James and John. And his belief in them transformed them. 
He put together this ragtag band of unique people with glaring weaknesses and then absolutely astonished them with their potential strengths. I mean, Peter never dreamt he would ever preach like that. John never knew he could ever love like that. James never imagined he'd ever be able to lead like that. Think about it. Just three years on from this, over in the book of Acts, these very same guys, Peter and John, they were brought, dragged before the religious council of Jerusalem for preaching about the resurrected Jesus. Look what it says in Acts 4.13. I love what it says. It says, when, when these religious authorities saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. We are here today in this room, in this church, because of those losers that Jesus transformed. It was said in the first century that these unschooled, ordinary men were responsible for turning the whole world upside down. These guys never dreamt they would ever end up like this. But Jesus got hold of them. Their potential got released. Purpose began to surge through their veins. Courage flooded into their souls and they made a difference in this world. And that's God's dream for you. God has chosen you too. He wants you. Look what it says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Again, I'm going to read the message version. It says, but you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you, from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. You notice who wrote that? Peter. Peter, the fisherman who was a nobody. He wrote those words. He became a player in ways he never dreamt possible because Jesus chose him. Jesus instilled in him that he had a meaningful contribution to make. Jesus invested in these guys. He poured his life into them. Eventually, he would pour his spirit into them. And he's still doing the same thing today. He's choosing the unlikeliest of people to play a significant part in his eternal plan for the world. So you might feel disqualified. You may feel as though you have blown it in some way, You might be acutely aware of your weakness. You might feel like you've got too much other stuff going on in your life right now. But God's power is more than able to compensate for your weakness. He's got great plans for you. We've seen the kind of people that Jesus 
chooses. Funnily enough, people like you, people like me. Second thing I don't want you to miss here is the reason that Jesus has picked you. I want to see his purpose in choosing you. I want you to see the mission that he's got in mind for you. Just note the rest of Jesus' words to Peter here in verse 10. Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. Jesus said, don't be afraid. And then he announces a plan for Peter's life that would have sent shivers down his spine, that would have left him very, very afraid. He said, from now on, you'll be fishing for, you will be rescuing people. And the whole course of his life is changed in that moment. Just as Jesus has reached out to Peter, he is now to reach out to others. Peter is to reach out to others with the same life-saving message of grace that so transformed him. Now, obviously, Peter was different from us in a number of crucial ways. He was chosen to be one of the apostles in the first church. He was also entrusted with the important task of writing a portion of the New Testament. In that respect, Peter's calling was very different to our calling. But in another sense, Peter's experience here is surely a picture of every disciple. When we encounter Jesus Christ, we also find our true calling. It's like our life is completely altered from that moment onwards. We we have a whole new purpose. We receive a brand new mission in life. But experiencing the undeserved, the unmerited, the unearned favoured of God, His grace on our life is only half the story. Because out of the overflow of receiving that transforming grace, we too, like Peter, are now called to join Jesus in his amazing work of spreading the good news of this grace to the people around us. Right now, God is wanting to grab your attention. If you hear nothing else this morning please hear this. God is saying to you, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. There are people that you know right now who He intends to save. How's He going to do it? Through you. You are His chosen means of rescuing them. You're thinking, well, I've tried. I've tried sharing my faith. It hasn't worked. I'm tired. I'm weary of putting in all the effort without any success. It's all very well, you standing there telling me what to do, but you don't know my friends. You don't know how hostile they are. You don't know how disinterested they are. And anyway... I'm not confident enough. I don't know what to say. I I, I don't want people to think I'm odd. I don't want to look stupid in front of them. I don't want to lose all my friends. I'm just not cut out for it. It's never going to work. Nothing's going to happen. What's the point? 
You know, Jesus didn't allow Peter to have that miraculous catch of fish so Peter's fishing business could prosper. Jesus gave Peter that startling catch of fish to open his eyes to spiritual reality. He let him catch those fish so Peter could have this graphic picture of what his life was going to be given to from this moment on. Not the catching of fish, but the rescuing of men and women with the gospel. This was a life-changing lesson for Peter. He, He would have remembered this the rest of his life. And it was written down by Luke, so it could be a life-changing lesson for us as well. Jesus can do so much more than our feeble minds think possible. We really mustn't limit him. We mustn't scale down our expectations to what we think is realistic. The same God who produced that miraculous catch of fish also, soon after this, saved 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost through Peter's previously unanointed preaching. And get this, he hasn't changed. He can do the same today. Through us. Through you. You know... God has promised us as a church that he has many people for us in this city. He's promised us exponential growth. He's told us to dream of the day when Jesus is the most talked about person in Birmingham. It's going to happen. Don't know when, but it is going to happen. But it's not going to happen until we overcome our nervousness and our fear and our cynicism, and our apathy, and our lack of faith, and everything else that stops us, prevents us from going out and putting the nets down. Jesus' call to Peter is his call to you. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. You will rescue people. That's the reason Jesus has picked you. That's the reason Jesus has chosen you. And then third, I just want you to notice their response. Jesus said to these guys, I've chosen you. Now I want you to help me rescue others. How did they respond to this? Look again at verse 11. Again, I I want you to let the full force of these words hit you. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. They left everything, including that record catch of fish. They they just gave it all up. Jesus chose them, and that was enough for them. Now, not every Christian is called to leave their career. Some of us will, 
many of us, I guess the majority of us, won't. But either way, our devotion, our commitment to Jesus' mission should be no different. We are all called to sign on to his agenda. Some of you need to hear this. Jesus doesn't come merely to bless our plans and make all our dreams come true. No, we're to reorientate our plans and our dreams to him. It's like being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus does come at a high cost. We're to be willing to turn our back on everything in our pursuit of him, our reputation, our popularity, our desire for an easy life at times, our dreams, our ambitions. He wants our devotion, our passion to be so great that in a sense we forsake all things to follow him. Just like Peter, James and John did. You know, sometimes I think we can make it so much more complicated than it really is. Jesus calls us to do something. I mean, what's there to think about? What's not to trust about him? In reality, you have nothing to lose. But you have everything to gain. So what's holding you back? What's stopping you? I don't know, maybe you're here today and you're exploring the Christian faith. (laughs) Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer. Maybe you'd describe yourself more in terms of being a seeker. Do you mind if I just reinterpret your circumstances according to what the Bible teaches? The Bible says that Jesus is the one who's doing the seeking. Jesus is the one seeking you. The the, the true seeker here today is Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who caused you to be here this morning. He's the one who's opening your eyes to see what you were created for. And my advice to you would be to respond like Peter and James and John here in this story. Lay everything else down to follow him. And in just a few moments, just to tip you off, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do just that, to follow Jesus. Or maybe you are already a Christian. Maybe you're already a follower of Christ, but you're not fully on board with his mission. You're not giving yourself to the rescuing of people around you. I want you to consider, what is it that makes you afraid? What is it that is stopping you? What's keeping you from obeying Jesus and trusting him to give you the power that you need? Won't you join Peter in kneeling before Jesus? Join Peter and say, Jesus, you have every reason to depart from me. I I really don't deserve the mercy that you hold out. But here I am, wholly available to you.